This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I am here today sitting on the wings of Sarah Week on Sunday, March 6th with Lauren Rusekis. How are you, Lauren? Very good, Hill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we are. This is the we, we've talked several times and talk often every week, but this is the first time we've had a conversation in person and the first Energy Sense recording in person. And I think two years. So, so this true. is uh, a real positive. As a setup here, we're talking about something less positive. We're going to talk about the crisis in Ukraine, which by all measures is a humanitarian crisis. We're going to talk specifically today about energy and really how we got here, what it means for Europe, and what we're thinking longer term. Uh, I, I mentioned the date, March 6th, today, that when we're recording these things are changing fast. A lot might change between now and the time this gets released uh, to our listeners. So try and keep that in mind as we talk today. So I guess, Lauren, where are we today? How, how did we get to this position as it relates to energy, as it relates to Russia's aggression against Ukraine? Uh, thanks, Hill. So yeah, I, what you said is completely true that, first of all, this is a, a horrible tragedy. And like everyone else, we're watching it. Um, with great sadness and hope that somehow it can turn around. Um, how did we get here? I think that I won't go into details of how or why Russia and specifically President Putin made the decision to invade Ukraine. But what's clear is he made two major miscalculations. Number one, he thought that the military operation was going to go much more smoothly, that without much resistance, he was going to be able to come in and Russian forces would take Kiev, the capital, and that would all be done in a few days. That obviously hasn't happened. There's been tremendous resistance and the Ukrainian military has performed well, the Russian military less well. Uh, the second miscalculation I think was related to sanctions. Although the Russian state had been preparing itself for sanctions for some time, because I think it knew that were it ever to make a, a move like this, there would be would be sanctions. And we heard a lot about the $630 billion in international currency reserves held by the Russian Central Bank. The reaction in terms of sanctions was so overwhelming. It was far beyond what anyone would have assumed or guessed. If there was complete unity between Europe and the United States and Canada and other uh, countries. And the sanctions were much harsher than anyone would have imagined. Specifically, central bank reserves, some of those are actually held abroad and those have been frozen and, and the Russians do not have access to them. That is someone no one was talking about. And so I think now Russia has to try to figure out how to proceed given where things stand today. And unfortunately, and we've spent a lot of time I'm on energy, of course, but I've spent a lot of time with our S&P Global colleagues who cover politics and military affairs. And the most likely scenario going forward is that Putin feels that he must deliver some kind of victory. And that can only mean going ahead further, trying to use more and more force mm -hmm. to, to seize Kiev. And from that, we're going to see photos from that. The world will see images from that. 
um, that could certainly lead, despite the harshness of the sanctions so far, to a next even harsher round, including sanctions potentially specifically on oil and gas. And that's so, so the sanctions, uh, it, it sounds like, yes, Putin may have underestimated the, the sanctions and how quick uh, the, the West was able to organize itself around these sanctions. It sounds like he may have guessed correctly that the energy sector would be exempt from sanctions at least at the early stages. And, and so far as of this morning, most of energy is exempt from sanctions. That's right. So sanctions, uh, and there were obviously discussions to bring the U.S. and the EU to a common position. What's interesting is that we remember President Biden speaking before the invasion, speaking on sanctions, and he sort of acknowledged that there were some differences in opinion in terms of between the EU and the U.S. in terms of sanctions. In fact, those differences of opinion didn't really appear. Once the invasion happened, the reaction was very fast and united. Now, part of the reason it was united is because oil and gas were specifically not touched. Now, there were financial sanctions. A number of Russian banks uh, were removed from SWIFT or no longer allowed to use the SWIFT system, which- Including Russia's largest. Including Russia's largest bank, uh, Spare Bank. And that allows international transactions to take place. However, some banks were specifically in this first- tranche of sanctions left off the list. Mm -hmm. And those included some of the banks understood to be used for oil and gas transactions. And of course, you can switch from using a bank that's no longer on SWIFT to a bank that is on SWIFT. Now, what we've seen in with regard to oil and with regard to LNG is that these financial sanctions have any case had an effect. I won't get into the oil market, but we've seen Russia having a difficulty exporting its crude. It's cargoes being sold at a huge discount to what they would normally sell for. And this is because of concern of further sanctions coming. If you're getting a cargo a month ahead, a lot of things can happen between now and then. Also, all of these trades require trade finance partners, insurers, and all that. There's a whole series of financial entities there that even if their activity is not specifically sanctioned, are shying away from trading in Russian barrels. Let's just hold off on this activity for a while. Right. That also happened in LNG. And here, this is going to impact the gas price and has impacted the gas price in Europe. Um, there was a situation last week where there were four cargoes of LNG loaded from Novatek's Yamal LNG project. This is in the Russia's far north. Particularly in winter, these cargoes sailed to Europe. Two of them had destinations of the UK. Two of them were going to France. The UK instituted a ban on any Russian ships coming to British ports. Okay. And then the French buyers apparently pulled out of those deals as well, fearing that there would be in some EU countries or the EU as a whole might impose the same ban on Russian ships. And so there's a period of time where those cargoes were just waiting for a new destination. It's been reported that one of them is going to Belgium. Uh, I'm not sure what's happened to the, the, the rest. However, gas pipeline deliveries, which is by far the main way Europe gets Russian gas from Gazprom. Those have continued untouched to surprise of many, but those are long established. There's not a, a cargo that's being bought and sold on a spot basis. Those are long-term relationships between Gazprom and its counterparties. And so far that's moved ahead without any disruption. And that's mostly, uh, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal this morning, that most the, the, the countries with the most exposure to that gas are Germany, Italy, parts of Eastern and Central Europe, but not so much Spain, UK, or Western Europe. That's correct. I think UK, Spain does not receive any Russian gas by pipeline. The UK doesn't either. France a little bit. The biggest 
EU buyer of Russian gas is Germany, as you said, second is Italy, and then to varying extents, countries in Central and Eastern Europe rely on, on Russian gas. And so what have the prices been doing from the consumer's perspective in each of those areas? Well, for prices, we look at the, the Dutch uh, hub called the TTF, which is the main European gas price benchmark. And prices there have been, first of all, they were already very high right. before there was a Russian invasion of Ukraine even looming. Uh, this was a result of the global LNG market getting very tight in sort of summer of 2021, and then not going out of its way to provide extra gas in the market, meeting its contractual obligations by delivering volumes, which by the way, have been declining for reasons we don't 100% understand, but also not selling any additional gas outside the terms of the contract. So we already had astonishing, very high prices in October. We had a very big run up in December. And then what we've seen now is more of the same, except this time it's driven by fear of a disruption of supply. So we've seen another phase of extremely high prices, prices going as high as over $60 per million BTU, which is crazy high. That's more than 10 times what would have been considered a normal price sure. uh, before this, and tremendous volatility based on concerns about potential disruption. And that 60 is from like 40 or so in the fall, right? Well, they've been fluctuating so much that it's hard to okay. pin anything down. But but in general, we, we've had prices in this sort of 20 to $40 per million BTU range since September, occasionally going up higher than that. And now, you know, I haven't checked the, the latest, but they were over 60 for a period of time in the last couple of days in the first week of March. Well, and then the other big headlines specific to energy coming out of this was Nord Stream 2, which the, so, so a year ago, you and I talked about Nord Stream 2 which seemed to be moving forward in many ways. And as of what last week or week before, it is officially not moving anywhere. That's correct. So what happened on February 21st, which was three days before the, the big invasion, but that was the day that uh, Russia recognized the independence of these two breakaway Russia proxy statelets in, in East Ukraine. Germany announced that it was withdrawing one of the regulatory decisions that had been made that was needed for Nord Stream 2 to be certified. Pipeline was completed last fall, filled with gas, ready to go. But there's a long regulatory process that was underway. And the German government, most of it's in the hands of the independent regulator. So the government can't come in and say, we're changing this. It's, it's by law an independent regulator. However, one approval saying that this pipeline does not threaten the security of supply of Germany, or the security of supply of the EU. That had been granted in November by the Ministry of Economics and, and Climate. On February 21st, the German government withdrew that okay. approval. Then after the invasion, we saw the US impose very harsh sanctions on the Swiss entity, Nord Stream 2 AG. So what's happened now is that companies can no longer transact with that entity in US dollars. And it appears from press reports that they have uh, let go their staff and gone into some sort of bankruptcy or liquidation right. proceeding. Okay, so so then, it, so I guess that's really where we are today. Mm -hmm. um, and, and all of this has moved within the past two and a half, three weeks. So it's all happening very quickly. Yeah. If we're looking at things today, I guess first, you're coming into Houston. We're talking here in Houston from the UK. What's the general mood from the European perspective outside? I mean, obviously, the mood in Ukraine is, is one that's terrible. From an energy perspective, putting the humanitarian issues aside for a second. I think the mood in Europe is one where both at the level of public opinion, 
and at the level of governments, there is a complete change in terms of views of Russia and the ability to do business with mm -hmm. uh, this current uh, Russian government. Now, it's been like that for quite some time in Baltic states and Poland, but there was always a bit of skepticism mm -hmm. from, from Germany, from France. These were countries that, from Italy that tried to maintain some sort of economic partnership with Russia while, of course, joining in the EU sanctions that came after Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014. Any desire in those governments has something to do with public opinion, to be sure, to cooperate with Russia, including on energy, is gone. And I think the starkest change of opinion has come in Germany, where mm -hmm. it, it's almost, I mean, I don't want to Im impute sort of psychological motives to a country and its decision-making processes, but you sort of feel like a view that, well, we, we were the ones who, despite everything, we're trying to maintain, working very hard and using our political capital right. to maintain some sort of partnership, and you have you have violated that. And so now Germany has gone completely in, in, in the other direction, both in the security realm, delivering arms to Ukraine, which is something that's unthinkable a month ago, um, but also getting very tough and, and thinking about taking quite robust actions in terms of energy. And the, the the financial sanctions that we're talking about a second ago. So, so if, we're, if we're thinking or if we're looking today at the situation, there's a few levers that can still be pulled, uh, that there's discussions in the paper today about uh, the, the U.S. stopping accepting imported Russian barrels. Um, and, and there's more conversations like that, I'm sure, that, that aren't that, that I haven't seen in the paper. Are we expecting things to get worse before they get better? I think the expectation for sure is worse before they get better because it's very hard to see uh, an outcome in the sort of short, medium term to the conflict that doesn't see Russia stepping up its military attack and creating a, a situation that demands another round of response mm -hmm. in terms of Western governments. Now, what that might be, there's a lot of voices now saying in Europe, we must stop importing Russian gas. Now, on what time frame? Someone could say, well, let's, we must stop tomorrow. That's not a consensus opinion for sure. Um, and that would impose, it could be done, but it would be extremely difficult. It would be sort of an emergency situation right. in the European economy. The EU has been working on a plan. It was supposed to be released last week. It wasn't. Maybe it'll be released this week. It's obviously been changing due to events. So there's different rumors about what it'll include. It appears to be focused on reducing the role of gas in Europe's energy mix. One rumored element is targeting a 40% reduction in European gas demand or EU gas demand by 2030, which is a big, that's a big change. That is a sort of all hands on deck. We're doing everything we can to increase the role of renewables, right? Uh, and maybe even increase the role of other less clean fuels. Although of course, a lot of coal comes from Russia. So coal is not necessarily an, an answer there. So that's part of it. There's also, you can see a lot of efforts really more at the government level, member state level, to start to diversify gas supply. So Germany, for instance, has now going to be fast tracking to LNG regasification projects that have sort of been not moving forward in Germany. Today they have none, right? There's... Today they have none. They're, they're connected to the Northwest European market. They have access to the Dutch Belgian capacity, but Germany itself has no regas terminals. So this kind of thing is going on. And that that would sort of reduce or maybe be linked with a plan to reduce to zero. Mm -hmm. We don't know any details. I don't think any details on that will be announced this week. 
um, <clears throat> the role of Russian gas in the economy. But how you do that, how you get there, is still undetermined. But it's a, it, it tells us something that these things are even being considered because they were it would have been unimaginable uh, even a month ago. And so what I mean, you've got I guess a couple options that that you can diversify away from Russian gas, or, or you could diversify away from gas entirely. And both are going to take many years to, to do. I mean, is there, a, I know we've only been in this situation now for a couple, three weeks. Is the pendulum moving one way or another? Is there a move to say, we'll, we'll take, we need to ramp up LNG beyond the, the, the German uh, approval? Sure. I mean, it'll be a combination of both. I, I don't think you can rely on simply reducing the role of gas and doing nothing further, specifically with regard to Russian gas. You certainly can't rely simply on diversifying gas supply without trying to, to reduce gas demand. I mean, some of the problems that one faces when thinking about this are, first of all, there's a gas market in Europe. They spent a lot of time and effort creating a proper gas market. And in a gas market, Russia is the low cost supplier and there's infrastructure is there and they're always going to have a big a big role. You might step back and say it's actually interesting that Russia doesn't have a larger share of the of the Russian gas market given the the, the way it functions. So any any steps to counter that are really going to have to involve quite substantial intervention in that free market. If it's left to the market, things won't really change. So there's a number of things one can consider. We could have mandated differential punitive entry tariffs for entry to the transmission systems of EU member states for Russian gas to make this low cost gas a high source, high cost okay. source of gas, things like that. That's one idea. You could mandate a reduction of Russian gas supply, you could just be mandated. If you have a contract that says you're importing X amount of gas per year from, from Russia through 2035, well, by X year, it has to be 80% of that. By two years after that, it has to be 60% and just mandated with its law, it's the law the buyers will have to comply. So, but this is not at all the way, this is completely counter to the way anybody's been thinking in terms of policy makings in, in, about the EU gas market. So it's a big, big step to start well, doing that. And the, some of this would, uh, I would assume, give support to a lot of projects that have been sitting in a sense mothballed. I mean, if, if I'm just, just off the top of my head, if you started Senegal, there's huge gas discovery in the MSGBC basin off Senegal. You keep moving around Africa. You've got Cyprus, you've got Israel, you've got Egypt, you've got Mozambique. There's all sorts of giant conventional gas discoveries there that, that really haven't moved forward. And I would assume that there's concern about stranded asset risk given the ambivalence toward fossil fuels right now. That's a great point. And, and I, th I think what the EU would need to think about if it's setting up a place that a, a system where there will be a growing need for imported LNG, mm -hmm. say, um, first of all, the LNG market is tight. I mean, it's going to prices will be high. LNG market is going to be tight in our outlook till 25, 2026. Um, if sanctions stop Novatech's next project, Arctic 2 LNG, that was going to bring in a big slug of new LNG supply in 2024. So that's a high price environment. But for sure, this could incentivize FIDs, a new LND liquefaction in places like Africa, places like the United States. But that takes time. I mean, the lead time, except for so-called fast LNG using modular technology, big questions whether that can be ramped up quickly. But your average LNG project is four or five years for right. FID to producing anything. So that's, you know, 
that's not urgent. And that assumes agreement. If everyone agreed today that we would be Absolutely. not risking stranded assets, right. then it would take four to five years. Yeah. If there's debate, it's four to five years plus a day. Yeah. The EU is aware of the stranded assets problem. Um, they, this is also arises with regard to methane mm -hmm. emissions. Uh, you can imagine a, a producer of LNG in Africa that's selling gas to Europe and they're being told, starting to be told, we're going to have rules about methane emissions related to your production of gas. And the response is, well, you're decarbonizing anyway. How can we invest a lot of money right. reducing our methane emissions if you're decarbonizing? Same can be said for delivering extra gas or developing fields for Europe, given the context of phasing out Russian gas. So there's a way to address that. Do you, do you give a long-term contract backed by public money? Um, do you have that extend out toward the the later years when you're getting close to decarbonization, you say, if you make these commitments now, you will be the last one pushed out the door. I don't know. I mean, these are really just concepts at this time. I'm throwing out some ideas. There are a lot of people in Brussels, in various EU capitals discussing this even as we speak. And we'll see. It'll be very interesting to read whatever communication comes out, perhaps this very week, uh, about the way this discussion is going. So one of the... Uh... I guess you know that there, there's a classic line that the, the the cure for high prices is high prices, and we're all of this is also happening globally as rates are rising in most of, if not all, Western countries and developed economies, which have a natural tendency to slow down economies. Are we in if three to five years or whatever is what we're looking at in terms of liquefaction? Are we at risk of kind of recession activity that lowers prices? And at least from an energy perspective, one is spending less money on their energy. I don't think we're at the point. Certainly, our economic forecasters uh, at S&P Global are not now projecting Europe to go into recession. And gas demand has proven very robust, despite incredibly high prices. This, it's interesting because this sort of thing, in the past, we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about or modeling because prices, you know, you had coal and you had some interaction between coal and gas in the power sector. Um, we're now completely out of those ranges in terms of very high gas prices, even with coal prices very high. So only recently have prices been so high, we were forced to look at how much demand actually gets destroyed when gas prices get very high. The answer has been so far, not very much. I mean, it's a pretty price inelastic demand. We could see, especially if there's any disruption, we haven't talked about that, potential for disruption of yeah. Russian gas slavery to Europe. But if there is any disruption, there's discussion about can, what can we do to Will gas-intensive industries be compensated to shut down or to shut down part-time? Right. Um, uh, will there be campaigns? There have been very little of this in Europe. Um, will there be campaigns to get people to use less gas? Turn in, you know, it's winter is fortunately coming to an end, but, you know, be make it a little more chilly in your house. Use less gas. Those campaigns do work. I mean, it's been proven to work in other other jurisdictions. So. Is that a another miscalculation to, that the uh, that the spring is upon us or, or nearly upon us and, and the gas demand falls as a result of that? Well, I mean, as it happens, um, I guess from a point of view of uh, pressure on Europe, um, yeah, sure. If this had happened earlier, that it would it would have been better for Russia. It's very lucky, by the way, that we didn't have a cold winter. I mean, this right. whole picture would look very, very different if we had had a real cold January or February, which we didn't. We had a very mild winter. So the system would be much more stressed had it, had it been cold. So shall I say a bit about the risk of disruption that people are worried yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's important context here because supply chain more broadly is just getting sorted out with COVID-19. 
That's right. And you you can't look at what happened in early March since the invasion, really, to prices and explain it based on the fundamentals. Because as I said, the supply fundamentals have been not changed. There was a lot of LNG coming in January. Russian volumes came up, actually, February. But there's obviously concern, number one, that Russia, in response to harsh sanctions, might cut off the gas. Right. That would be a big deal. That's a large chunk of European supply, 20 plus percent, 20 plus 25 percent. Um, number two, Europe could say, as I discussed before, Europe could say, well, we're embargoing to a certain extent or in certain ways, some of it. We're not we're going to import less Russian gas. That's another disruption. Then, of course, there's a conflict actively going on in Ukraine. So that could either accidentally disrupt the gas transmission system. About about 7% of Europe's gas comes from Russia via Ukraine. So it wouldn't be catastrophic, but that would be significant and keep prices at very high levels. And that could happen whether it's an accidental thing or an, a, so, a so-called accident uh, used by the Russians as an excuse to cut off supply through Ukraine while blaming the Ukrainians. That's something kind of he ruled out. The Ukrainians have been warning, right. warning about that. So that's those are the things we're we're watching. We don't have. It's hard to. We haven't. Uh, we don't have a base case scenario that gas will be disrupted through there because that's not the sort of thing you do a base case scenario about. <laughs> even if it even if it seems. I think there's a lot of people in the market are are just looking at the images and looking at the conflict and saying, is it really possible this is all going to continue as if nothing has happened? Right. Um, even if it's hard to explain how it would happen, there, there's not a lot of conviction that stable gas flows will continue. So, and we wanted to keep this at 30 minutes. So maybe just as a, as a place to wrap it up and, and so much is changing so fast. So, so let's talk in big strokes or broad strokes here. What are the big things that we should be paying attention to in terms of the leading indicators for change over the next several weeks? And then long-term, you know, what are the big levers that Europe can pull on to more quickly address, uh, you know, the, the, these dates have moved forward from 2050 to 2035 to 2030, whatever they are. What, what are the levers that people can pull to, to make things change faster? I think we we watched the statement that comes out and the plan that's proposed by the EU this week. Um, and then we look at how radical that is. I suspect we'll see things in there that we'll be surprised by mm-hmm. in terms of how, uh, how much of a, a change it reflects in, in the mindset. Uh, and then we'll see. I mean, fundamentally, as I said before, Europe has built a gas market, a liberalized liquid gas market. Um, so I think the thing that Russia, you have, all, I mean, sorry, Europe has all sorts of levers. If you're going to intervene in dramatic ways in the economy, in the gas industry at the member state level and or at the EU level, you have tremendous levers. Those are the governments. They can they can take sovereign decisions. So what we're going to see here is does the the mindset, I think in the past, when we were in a different situation, 2014, um, it was proposed by then president of of the the commission, uh, Donald Tusk, former Polish prime minister, proposed to create a single buyer for Russian gas. That plan did not go anywhere because it just wasn't, it didn't fit. The industry thought, what, why, why are we doing this? Everything's working fine. I'm not saying that specific plan will be brought back, but it'll just be interesting to see to what extent you'll see plans that represent a big increase in the state role in the gas industry to support number one, energy security, port number two, reducing the role of Russian gas. And by the way, I haven't emphasized this, but at the base of all of this, it's doing it in alignment with proceeding and even speeding up the energy transition. Okay, which has 
massive long-term implications on all of this. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Lauren. This has been a, uh, a pleasure to have this conversation in person, uh, as difficult as the conversation may happen to be. Thank you, Hill. Great to see you. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.